Hi there, Hi. Dr. Herman. <laughs> Hi, David. Nice to meet you. Yeah, good to meet you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. I mean, coming, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we are so used to it already now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Yeah, just um, we can, yeah, we can start wherever you'd like. Yeah. Congratulations on your new president. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, I guess that, yeah, that's nice to think about, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we listened to Biden's speech while cooking dinner. <laughs> so very yes. big words. Huh? Yeah, you know, by, by comparison, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Right. So um, I guess if there's no place you specifically want to mm -hmm. start, um, we might start with, I guess, who you are, <laughs> you know, sort of what yeah. you're now doing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so I am an assistant professor at the University of Twente in the Netherlands. That is, uh, yeah, it is a, yeah, basically a technical university, or at least the focus is on technical like disciplines. But it's quite broad. It has psychology, etc., as well. So it's quite a special place to be at as a philosopher, because yeah, I mean the philosophy department is actually quite big, but yeah, people are mainly doing things related to technology, the so philosophy of technology, ethics of technology, a little bit of philosophy of science. We have our own master program called Philosophy of Science, Technology and Society. It's a very small and very yeah, special program, very international as well. Yeah, and I've only uh, joined that university basically six weeks or something before the first lockdown started. So I've had, so I've almost there. <laughs> <laughs> but I very much, I very much like it. So I, yeah, I'm actually very happy about where I am now. That's awesome. Yeah. So you have been at um, Twenta for, um, I'm not sure how long, relatively recently, right? Yeah, exactly. So not even a year, almost a year. I started February 1st last year. Yeah. Okay. So coming up on a year, congratulations. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Where were you, um, what kind of work were you doing before then? Before that, I was at Eindhoven Techn uh, um, yeah, University of Technology, so also a technical university, even more technical, a bit more narrow. <laughs> um, yeah, that was also a great experience. That's when I started uh, doing philosophy and ethics of technology. As you know, before that, I was really mainly doing metaethics and yeah, Wittgenstein, so stuff following that from my PhD, some evolutionary ethics. Yeah, and where were you? Where did you do your PhD? I did that in Florence, in Italy, at the European University Institute. So that's an institution, yeah, um, created by the EU. So it's not Italian, but it happens to be in Italy, which is not, wasn't really nice for me. I really love Italy. So that was one of the reasons I wanted to go there. That institute doesn't have um, undergraduate students. It only has graduate students and postdocs. But mainly, it's really a sort of factory for... PhD students. <laughs> and um, yeah, before I, I went there, one of my old professors from, from Germany, from Heidelberg, told me, well, the reputation of that place is that there are more marriages coming out of that than actually finished PhDs. <laughs> That's really funny. And I did both. I found my husband there, but also <laughs> I <got a> PhD. <laughs> yeah, it was really funny. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. You know, two birds with one stone yeah. and all that. That's great. Yeah. yeah. And um, I mean, the disadvantage was that it doesn't really have a proper philosophy department. 
it has a political science department. That is where I was at. It was called Department of Political and Social Sciences. And there were always like a few philosophers around, but really the minority. And there was a law department with some like philosophers of law, econ economics department and history department. And that's it. So, yeah. That's so interesting because in the U.S., at least the sort of advice you usually get whenever you're applying to grad school are to go to, of course, a very strong department with lots of people who do the kind of thing that you want to do. And it sounds like you were able to um, do your Ph.D. and sort of write your book um, or one of your books um, in a space that didn't have too many philosophers. Exactly. Yeah. So I really needed to reach out to other philosophers through going to conferences. I spent one semester in Berkeley where I really enjoyed like the philosophical community. And, and of course I was trying to get all the philosophers that were there to talk to me and we had reading groups and stuff. Um, but, it was, um, but it was limited disadvantage. When I, I mean, at that point in Germany, it was quite difficult to, to do a PhD within an organized structured program, which I which really attracted me. Normally you would just do it, you would ask a professor whether he or she was willing to supervise you and you would like have your own topics, your own ideas, and then you would have to find funding. And that was quite difficult also to get funding for that. And you would just be on your own and just doing your PhD. And I thought it would be really nice to be part of a structured program, to have a social community. And yeah, that also was like four years of funding guaranteed which was really special. And I loved Italy. And it, yeah, it's a very, yeah, a very good institution where you get all the things you need, like all the facilities and, and possibilities to, to go abroad and organize interesting workshops and conferences. So all of that attracted me. When I was there, I, I started missing, I, I sometimes missed being really in the philosophy department. But I think I learned also so much because I always had to explain what I was doing to non-philosophers, which is of course very good trainings and and i also always i mean went to to talks uh, from sociologists political scientists historians etc and had so much exchange with people from different disciplines that sounds like a great opportunity yeah 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 so on that since you are have obviously have had professional relationships and interactions with all kinds of people from different fields. Um, this might be a good question to, uh, I guess, think about since I think everyone does it differently. How did you personally get into philosophy such that you decided you eventually wanted to do a dissertation and um, <laughs> write on it and be a philosopher? Yeah. So I found it very difficult to choose what I wanted to study because while I was still at high school, I all the time wanted to become an actress. I was completely convinced of that. I'm going to become an act a theater actress. <laughs> so no doubt. So that was easy. I knew what I wanted to do. I was completely convinced. And then when, I, when it started to get serious, because I was almost like finished high school, I started applying for like the really good public drama schools in Germany. And then, yeah, I, I, I saw how hard it was. It's one of these borderline cases they told me. So I didn't get in like at least the first times I tried. But then I also started doubting already, do I really want this? Because they kept telling me also how tough it is. And, and then what I did is I went to a, a small place, like a very small kind of college, 54 people who lived in a small community, where for one year I could try out all kinds of subjects. So I an idea of what is studying like, what, what, yeah. And I was always interested in philosophy, but also from a bit from my family background. So that round, so that was always, but I, I always, of course, asked me, what do I want to do with that? So philosophy was not the first thing to choose with some profession in mind. 
So I did that. And in that year, I kept asking myself, okay, so what do I want to study? And I found so many subjects interesting. <laughs> and so I changed it basically every day. I, well, now I know. And then I had this combination in Germany, you also always combine subjects. So I don't know, I had all these things. And, and I actually was, got very enthusiastic about um, theology, Catholic theology, was, although I am a Protestant, but um, there was a really, really good course, very small course given by a, a, a Adrian who then but went to work as a consultant. So he was not really actually at university, but he, he taught there. And yeah, we got to this really fundamental questions and I got so excited and I was so, yeah, that I thought perhaps I study theology in combination with, yeah, I thought political science because I might want to go into journalism. But then I figured at some point, I mean, it was really serious. I had to make a decision that in the end, what interested me also most about theology were the philosophical questions. And I thought perhaps what I actually should do is philosophy because that is what really seems to interest me most. But I had to combine it with something and I decided to combine it with political science and actually in the beginning also German literature and linguistics. But then when I started, philosophy got me immediately. I was not really like German literature, the class the level was quite low and I, somehow I, I didn't really get into that. Political science, hmm. But philosophy was like, yes, yes. <laughs> so I remember I was in this wonderful, very old library, at the University of Heidelberg, where I started studying. And I was sitting there and starting to read like philosophical texts and like my heart just opened up and it was, yeah, just wonderful. But then I also figured, well, it's, it, this will be really intense and it will be tough. Three subjects I won't manage. So then I decided, okay, I just do two. And I combined it with political science. And in political science, I mainly did political philosophy. I could choose quite a lot. So I really had my focus there. And I did that, but I, I liked the combination also because political science kept me a little bit on the ground. I had the feeling sometimes. So that was kind of a good balance, but I never really felt like a political scientist wholeheartedly. But interestingly, although my focus was really very much on philosophy, um, it was good in retrospect that I did political science because it opened many doors for me. It was very good that I had this additional qualification that was good for my PhD for, to get into this institution perhaps in the first place. And also now where I'm doing all more interdisciplinary work, it's always good to, to, to be able to say, I also have an education in social sciences, not just a philosopher. So I don't regret that, but my heart was always beating for philosophy. Yeah, I seem to notice, I don't know if this is just a thing amongst um, philosophers who study Wittgenstein, but it's so great to do interdisciplinary work. In my program, we're required to do some kind of interdisciplinary work, and I've chosen anthropology. So for the last years, I've taken I've taken courses in anthropology as well as in philosophy, because um, I read Wittgenstein very anthropologically in a broad sense. Um, along with some of the other ordinary language philosophers, um, particularly Austin. But yeah, I think it's a great opportunity. And it's um, know, surprisingly interesting how many people in our field um, benefit from doing that kind of work. Um, yeah. working, interdisciplinary, working in an interdisciplinary setting on topics that um, social sciences as, as well as philosophers and also you know, theologians have been really interested in. Yeah. And it's so fascinating, I think, how many many fields were by Wittgenstein. Like one of the teachers in, in Heidelberg at my department, he um, really disliked the later Wittgenstein because he said 
you can get us to anything with him and people have used the beautiful for almost anything so that is something he really didn't like he really preferred the early Wittgenstein for that but I I was rather attracted by the openness of the work of the later Wittgenstein and I think it is really fascinating mm. that, yeah that you always come across him or his his ideas his influences mm. So how did you um, discover Wittgenstein then? That's always different for people. Yeah. So I think I already, there was some kind of seminar in a weekend where we went to some place and there we read also parts of the philosophical investigations and I found that interesting, but I was not completely like into it. But then I, I followed a seminar on skepticism. The topic was skepticism and we read all kinds of texts. And as a background reading, we, we read uncertainty. So that was really the first work I very carefully read. And I think it had also to do with the fact that many of these other readings in this um, seminar, I didn't like find so interesting. Um, it didn't like really touch me so much. Um, in contrast with that, uncertainty was fascinating for me. So I think it really stood out also because of this, like the general stuff I found a bit dry and also a bit difficult. And but then with, with uncertainty, it really got me. So that was, and then I, from starting from, and then I wanted to understand uncertainty better. And I decided at some point to write my master thesis about uncertainty, like really an exegetical thesis. Um, and I, I, I thought, okay, I'm really skating on thin ice here because it's all like first remarks, unrevised. So I, I try to read as much as possible of the other stuff to yeah to yeah the feeling for that work and to understand that better and then I found yeah also the remarks on the foundations of mathematics really interesting and, and all the like basically all of the later stuff um, so I read a lot of that not everything but a lot and found that so fascinating and especially the openness I mean it can drive you crazy sometimes I think <laughs> and I have some parts of the philosophical investigations I've read I don't know how many times again and again and again and again because I don't really get it and I also to and, I, and when I did my PhD also I had a small group and we we read some stuff together and yeah but I like that and, and yet I really like it I like it that he wants the reader to think for himself further right that he sometimes says it explicitly so now you can imagine yourself or think of an example. And he doesn't do the job for us. He doesn't want lazy readers. I really like that um, because it leaves room for creativity for, yeah. So that's how it, it's quite a coincidence. I must say many steps in my, my, my journey were really coincidences, it feels, yeah. Not really that I've had thought about, okay, what do I now want to do? And what do I think will be the most interesting or something? I just, it just happened. Yeah, I also yeah. resonate with the interest in skepticism. Um, I do mainly philosophy of religion, and I think yeah. about it, um, but both religious epistemology as it's now practiced or written about, but also just the history of religion um, in so many ways as a response to the threat of skepticism. Um, yeah. And so I think that's, for, for me, in, I resonate with philosophers whose entryway into philosophizing was some kind of initial doubt maybe just in a, like a gnawing interest as a kid. Um, yeah. I, whenever I was a child, I used to think a lot about whether I'd be the same person if I had a different body. And so um, mm. even though that's a yeah. very common sort of philosophical thought for, for Wittgenstein and with the importance of embodiment in our very specific particular context, um, it res really resonated with me a lot later once I discovered yeah. Wittgenstein. Yeah, um, yeah. So when did you discover Wittgenstein? 
So I guess I first technically got exposed to Wittgenstein in an undergraduate course on 20th century philosophy. And it was definitely a more, I guess, a more continental, continentally dominated class because we spent most of the time on Heidegger. But we also did read the, get through part of the investigations. And again, at the time I read what I had to, I wrote the term papers, I thought, it, I, but I didn't really, it didn't penetrate very deeply. It wasn't until a lot later maybe not a lot later, but a, a few years later, yeah. um, when I was in my first term of graduate school, whenever I was just wandering in the library, looking for a different book, not this, not, you know, not specifically looking for anything by Wittgenstein, that I found a book that I had always wanted to read by this Wittgensteinian philosopher. I'd heard about it, but, you know, like a lot of academic books, it was not terribly popular and then sort of disappeared from print. And so I mm. heard about this book, but I was never able to get it. And so I finally found this book. It's called Believing in God by a philosopher who's now dead. His name's Gareth Moore. And it was such a strange book that initially made me so frustrated and angry. And I thought I need to go back and revisit Wittgenstein and figure out what this means and why this is upsetting me so much. And once I did, similarly, I just had to very rapidly read a lot of Wittgenstein, a lot of the later Wittgenstein particularly. But it was just very exciting because even though it Initially, I was very resistant to it. Once I began to understand or began to sort of resonate with me, I just thought, wow, I've been thinking about philosophy very differently, probably wrongly. I need to rethink a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And ever since then, yeah. I've been very Wittgensteinian. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned in your email that in the US, you can feel quite isolated. Yeah, I mean, Wittgensteinian, I... right? That's something I've heard mm. before, actually. And also when I was doing my PhD, I heard that I think it's really a bit different here in Europe. I mean, it's not that it's mainstream, of course, but I think I heard that this particular also about the US, that this is something that, yeah. Oh, I'm glad that you say that, that I'm not the only one. I might, I, I was afraid I was just projecting, but if it's, if it's true. No, that... I heard that, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I think that what's happened, at least in me trying to make sense of it, I mean, obviously I'm not a historian of philosophy, so I don't know all of the reasons, but I think that the way it's been described back to me, literally by Wittgensteinians from Europe, is that mm -hmm. analytic philosophy in the US is very post-Quinean. And it's also very, it's, it's hard for me to characterize it because I'm not that type of analytic philosopher. But given the interest in like, you know, the logical schematizing of arguments and this quest for necessary and sufficient conditions and mm -hmm. the looking for definitions and all of that, which in its own rigorous context is really useful and helpful, but it means that a lot of analytic philosophers in the US are very antipathetic to Wittgenstein's style, to his methods. And I've also just met yeah. um, philosophers who, analytic philosophers who are honest enough to admit and say, I know that, you know, there's a lot that's really good in there and lots of really smart and, you know, intelligent philosophers like him. I just literally can't understand him and you can't fit him within the history, Hi. within oh, their yeah. perspective of analytic mm. philosophy. Yeah. Um, so as a result, well, uh, it's been... Yeah. As a result, it certainly has been the case that whether or not people individually have, you know, sympathize with Wittgenstein, it can be difficult to find, you know, prominent philosophers in the US um, where you can go study him specifically. It's sort of something which I think a lot of people pick up on the side. But yeah, that's just been my experience. I know that there are really prominent, you know, philosophers who liked Wittgenstein in the US. So it's not impossible. It's just for me, it's a little difficult. Yeah. No, but I think you are not the only one indeed. Yeah. So probably must be lucky to mm. be somewhere where there are also some others around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, for, I don't know what your experience is, but for me, Wittgenstein keeps really following me somehow. So when, when I, I told you, I, I wrote my master thesis on uncertainty. And then when I, while writing that, I thought, okay, I, I cannot imagine now just leaving university at this point and start whatever <laughs> job. So it, it was like, <laughs> I want to go on. I want to continue. Because I had, a, of course, I had been thinking about perhaps wanting to do a PhD before, but I was always really, really unsure. It's a very difficult decision to make. But then there was really this feeling, I want to continue. This cannot have been it. I don't want, yeah. But I also thought, I, because at my university, I somehow was very much in that very analytic camp. And um, yeah, it was difficult because the different professors really hated each other. It was a horrible, it was very hard. I always tried to be as open as possible and to like follow courses on all kinds of topics and philosophers. And I, I hated also the, really this analytic continental distinction. I didn't know about it when I started studying. And then I, I, I suddenly I understood this. And I, so at first I thought philosophy, for me, philosophy was philosophy. And then when I learned that there were these, yeah, these camps and at my university that was particularly strong because it was a very traditional philosophy. And then there was one analytic philosopher there. Mm -hmm. But he happened also to be the only one who really believed that women were as intelligent as men. The oh, only wow. one, really, yeah. It's really that the other two old professors literally said wow. oh, that, that women are yeah, just less intelligent. So, wow, quite something. <laughs> but he was the one like also really supporting like female students. So that's also a bit how I got to him, like to, to be his assistant at some point and just like student assistant and follow many of his courses. But then it got more and more like, yeah, as I said, then hardcore, hardcore analytics really with no, with no historical context interested him. And it was mainly philosophy of language and very specific little tiny <laughs> problems. And I, yeah. I got a bit tired of that. That was not what fascinated me about philosophy. So I thought, if I do a PhD, I want to do something really totally different. And then when I applied at that European University Institute, I um, thought, okay, now I go into moral philosophy, political philosophy, like away from all this philosophy of language stuff. So I actually didn't think, although I liked Wittgenstein, I didn't think of doing anything with Wittgenstein. I thought now a completely different chapter will begin and my proposal that I wrote was about the relationship between power and morality. And I thought I look at works of Kant, Nietzsche and Machiavelli. Mm. And it was a very rough, rough ideas that I had. Um, yeah, and then it was again a coincidence that at that institute, my supervisor at that point um, was really interested in Wittgenstein. And when she heard that I, yeah, I had work, been working on this or I had some ideas there. She immediately said, yeah, this is, if you do something like that, then. <laughs> and so somehow she really encouraged me. And then, so Wittgenstein came in again, a bit through the back door, really unexpectedly. And then I, yeah, it was basically in the seminar that we did there um, where we read some stuff about different theories of, um, of moral justification to so coherentism versus foundationalism and um, and when I was reading that, I thought, well, Wittgenstein can really help here, especially like uh, the stuff from uncertainty. This really seems to fit here. So that was a bit the starting point that I thought. And then, yeah, so I had this idea about moral certainty before I, I knew actually that other people like Nigel Pleasance had already written about that. So I only found that after a few years. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
yeah. But it just came up and then my supervisor was really enthusiastic. And that was, of course, nice for me because in the beginning I was quite insecure and didn't really know how to now make my proposal more concrete. And she was not of much help. And I felt a bit lonely also in that whole yeah, institute without many philosophers around me. So that was very tough, the beginning there. I felt really as an outsider. Um, and then it was so, yeah, it was so nice to, to see her so enthusiastic about this ideas that I had, how Wittgenstein could be illuminating in this context. So that's how Wittgenstein and yeah. That's <laughs> great, yeah. On the, on the, on the yeah, there again. And yeah, and then he sticked with me. Yeah, I, I really resonate with what you say about Wittgenstein staying with you, following you, almost, in my case, almost haunting me. Like I'll, con <laughs> I'll, I'll constantly yeah. have experiences or just learn different things and then think, oh, you know, relate it back to something in Wittgenstein. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I like what you say about your development in terms of, you know, the seminars you took on like coherentism or foundationalism. I mean, I think that raises an interesting question, which although I think, although I think I understand it, like many things in Wittgenstein, you think you understand it and you know, it's not all the time. But so one of the things I think is really interesting about your book on moral certainty, justification and practice one of the things you point out early in your book is that although some people have a foundationalist reading of Wittgenstein or although he's been used in like a lot of readings, you sort of point out that it's not the case that he's solving these traditional problems, but dissolving them. And the, um, the Wittgensteinian idea of dissolving problems rather than solving them is one of the things I think analytic philosophers find frustrating about Wittgensteinianism. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. Um, I guess from the way you've used it, both in your own work and just in general, your reading of Wittgenstein, what does that sort of mean? Like, what does it mean to dissolve a problem rather than to solve it? And why is that something which is worth doing with moral certainty as you do? Yeah, so um, I think that Wittgenstein rightly points out to us that in many cases, philosophers has, have asked the wrong questions. So they have thought that there is a certain problem, but that wasn't there, that somehow rests on certain yeah, misconceptions, wrong assumptions. So in this case, um, philosophers thought there is this um, justificatory regress because yeah, we, yeah, we need justifying, 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 and it, it never comes to an end. But yeah, according to him, as I understand him, there is no such regress because it is simply not the case that we keep having reasons for doubting. And I, I mean, this is actually not, I did not come up with this myself. I found that, I don't remember exactly in which book, there are two really good German books about Wittgenstein um, that I read. And one of them, I think it was Andreas Krebs' book about uncertainty. Um, I think he makes this point. That's why I first got it. But it resonates very well also with what epistemological contextualists say. I really like that idea that justification functions as a response to doubt. And doubt has to be based on reason. This is something that Wittgenstein also explicitly writes in uncertainty. And so at the moment where the doubter runs out of reasons, there's no point in coming with yet another justification. So the whole then the whole demand for justification just is pointless. So in that sense, I think he dissolved the problem. It, 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 there was never any problem here. There is no regress, so we do not have to find an answer to the regress problem. And something that also that interests me still is how this relates to intuitionism. 
because it seems that intuitionism in many respects also is quite close to a Wittgensteinian approach. It's also very close to common sense. And, but intuitionists at least have said that they were responding and solving the regress problem, right? They say that the regress ends with self-evident or self-justifying beliefs. Whereas I think the difference to Wittgenstein is that Wittgenstein wouldn't say that there is a regress in the first place. I still, I'm not sure how yeah, how, what the consequences of that are in the end. How big, how much of effect does this have? But it is certainly a difference. But yeah, I've not find it's hard. Like people who believe in the regress, they keep believing in it. I don't think they're, they're most of the time not convinced by this Wittgensteinian move. Yeah, it seems, and it seems this seems something really, really um, deeply rooted. Also, I think in the views of moral philosophers, that when it comes to morality, we need to continue justifying. I think in the moral realm, it's particularly provocative to say there is a point where it doesn't make sense anymore to ask for justification. That's my experience. Yeah, that's definitely great. Um, thanks. I just wanted to make sure I got a different perspective or a different, you know, a different voice, literally, you know, explaining that thing, which I sometimes I try to explain it. And I think that some philosophers think that the Wittgensteinian practice or maybe to a certain extent habit of trying to dissolve problems or undercut them is also just a way of avoiding them you know, of, rather than of, of trying to foreclose on a question before rather than seeking out the answer. I think mm -hmm. there is this idea amongst philosophers that we ought to be, you know, intellectually daring and willing to think thoughts that no one's thought before and entertain positions which seem absurd. And so to just yeah. be told at the beginning, you're asking a question where none can be asked. And so there's no, the thing that you think is an answer is only the illusion of an answer or only seems like mm. an answer. Mm. Can Even though I think, I firmly believe that it's true in a lot of the cases that Wittgensteinians, you know, use that as the move that they make. It can be frustrating. And like Wittgenstein even says, it can make philosophy seem less interesting because rather than answering really profound or you know, classical traditional problems or questions in philosophy, you wind up with a lot of ordinary practices and a lot of everyday mm. life, um, which I think is great. I mean, I think we should pay more attention to everyday life, but to tell people you just need to pay more attention to everyday life doesn't sound like a very philosophical mm -hmm. methodology. That is true. But then, of course, if you look at what he has written and the way he has thought, then that is, of course, pure philosophy, right? That really somehow contradicts the, the claim that we should get like away with all philosophy, I think. I mean, my father once also asked me that. He said, well, but, but Wittgenstein basically wants us to stop philosophizing. So that's, he found that a bit strange that this is then, this philosopher fascinates me so much. <laughs> but I don't understand Wittgenstein that way. And I think, I mean, the way he thought and what he wrote and everything in his whole life shows the, how important philosophy was to him. And I, so I don't think, I think it's a certain kind of philosophizing that he would say we should stop with, but it cannot be like philosophy as such, it yeah. seems to me. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm conflicted with what to ask next because it's also interesting. I guess, so I started to try to re, so I, I read your book um, a couple of years ago because I was in a seminar on metaethics 
And so, but one of the, so that we, it was a survey course. And so we surveyed some, uh, some various problems in metaethics, but the one yeah. that I focused mm -hmm. on was moral uncertainty because I, oh, Ted Lockhart, I keep forgetting. So um, Ted Lockhart, I don't know much more about him than what I read for my seminar, but wrote an argument on moral uncertainty that was far more, it's certainly very analytic and it you makes a great deal of like game theory and probability theory. Not those, not so much that those are not things I understand well enough to actually be able to like talk intelligently about. But the thing that irritated me about the book was a claim that he makes that there are all these, he you know, sort of really brings up that there's just so much a moral uncertainty in the world and that our need to act can sometimes require us to act in a way that is rational, but not necessarily morally permissible. So that, you know, I think, I think if I understood the argument correctly, it was that given the pervasive fact of moral uncertainty, we may be, in, we may be justified in taking actions that are immoral because we have a, it's more important that we rationally be able to act in cases of uncertainty than that we follow all of the sort of moral canons that we currently believe in. Mm. And independent of its merits as an argument, I just started, I had just stopped at the initial step and I thought, there's not pervasive moral uncertainty, <laughs> um, <laughs> or at least, or at least there's not that, or there, while there is uncertainty, I think the debate for me was how basic is this uncertainty? Does it go all the way down? Or is it really kind of just something on the surface? And obviously being a Wittgensteinian and also at the time also reading your book, I took the alternative route of saying, no, it's only the illusion of moral uncertainty. And the idea that we have to act in ways that contravene morality because that's the rational thing to do just evinces a very thin understanding of rationality. Um, yeah. One which I expect is based on these kind of probabilistic or game theoretic considerations. But that's how I got yeah. in. That's how I got mm -hmm. into your book. So, but I was rereading it um, the last couple of days, knowing that I was going to talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> wanted to make sure that I sounded like um, like I had uh, sounded intelligent and, and had good things to say about it. But the, one of the things I actually read a little bit as well again because I thought <laughs> you asked me. I need to know what's in that book. So <laughs> this afternoon, uh, noon, I was rereading the passages <laughs> and then the conclusions so during my. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad we've both read your book. Um, <laughs> the thing that one of the things that really excites me. Well, so I, I think the first half of your book, a lot of which explains kind of the Wittgensteinian approach you're taking, is really good in general. So if people have questions about what certain things mean in Wittgenstein, particularly in uncertainty, I can refer them to certain parts of your book. But the second part, where you make arguments about moral competency. I thought were really interesting. So I guess I'll just sort of say, yeah, why don't you tell me a little bit about how you think about moral agency or moral competency or if those are different? Yeah, and just even though, I mean, of course, I've read those parts of the book, you know, the listeners, whoever they may be, haven't. So how do you think about yeah. moral agency? Um, yeah. Yeah, so um, my starting point here was because this is something I didn't at the beginning, I didn't know that I would write about that. That's really something that I was led to. So starting from this idea of certainty and the regress and these kind of things, and then at some point getting to the question, you know, what is what is actually moral knowledge? 
And I thought, well, it doesn't make sense to conceive of it as a theoretical proposition, at least not primarily. These kind of accounts I wasn't convinced of, also not that immorality were really mainly aiming at true beliefs. And I thought that's now somehow not really convincing. That's how I got to this idea that the most important knowledge, if you want to call it that way, would be the mastery of all those practices that somehow I would call moral practices. So the mastery of those practices. And then, so it would be a kind of, and then I, I thought about what I know, knew about Ryle, the intellectualist legend, Ryle's account of knowing how. And I thought, well, this really also helps me here in understanding what moral knowledge or this mastery of moral practices would amount to. So I had many parts of the puzzle that I connected. I also then started connecting it to, to virtue ethics. That's of course also, it's also relevant. Also virtues understood in terms of skills. And yeah, the most important points for me were that this mastery of moral practices is something that we of course can only acquire through practice. And that, of course, is also a little bit similar to, to virtue ethics, that you become virtuous in practice. It consists of many different capacities, dispositions. That's, of course, a difficult notion, but I think it is useful as well. Then the emotional aspect, I also found that really important. I got interested in, in, in studies on yeah, psychopathy and so what, can, so what kind of emotional capacities are important for, for moral judgment. And yeah, it, I think it got quite complex <laughs> and I, I, I so, sort of tried to connect many different literatures and, and different, yeah, so that was quite something. And I moved perhaps at some point also, it seemed really beyond Wittgenstein, but then it still seemed to be in his spirit or in line with, with the rest because of the attention that he also pays to, to learning to the process of learning, of course, mainly learning a language. But that is, of course, embedded in, in learning other things. And of course, becoming morally competent, that involves also learning moral language. I think that relationship between learning a language and learning to act morally or to yeah, put oneself in somebody else's shoes, all these kind of things that are important for morality, all that comes together. Yeah, I sometimes still have hesitations about the notion of moral competence. Yeah, so I, because my, one of my thesis is then that it is for morally competent agents that certain things are certain. So it's not just for anyone, but is this, this, and then of course you can ask, well, but yeah, who is morally competent? And is there a difference between being morally incompetent and being evil or like doing something really bad. So, so that's, that's of course very difficult to answer. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a complex issue but these are perhaps the main, the main points that I think, um, so I'm always interested in the process of becoming the kind of agent for whom some things are beyond doubt in the moral realm. And then I, yeah, then I relate that also to, to being able to, to critically reflect upon like one's own society's moral norms and values, because that's of course also important. You, you want to have that as well. And I think it is, it is there. And I think it's part of this moral competence. And here I really liked uh, Julia Anna's book on, on virtue. I forgot the exact title, but um, she also really nicely explains how it is that 
in the process of becoming virtuous, an agent becomes able to critically reflect upon also the things that the agent has been taught. And actually one very nice experience I had in the, at, in the course of that part, not really the part of the book, but that part that was a bit similar in my thesis, was when I was, um, went to Oxford um, for a conference. It was the Oxford Philosophy Graduate Conference, a really nice conference where as a, yeah, as a PhD student, you have the chance of um, presenting, but really getting a lot of time. And one of the faculty members there will really comment on your paper, like really carefully. In my case, that was Sabina Lavebond. And yeah, that was really, really nice, a very good experience. And she asked me after our, after the session where I presented and then she like really thoroughly discussed my paper. Then she asked me, are you an Aristotelian? <laughs> and before that, I hadn't really thought about that this way, but this really encouraged me thinking more about Aristotle and virtue ethics. And then the whole thing, yeah, took much more shape. So one of the reasons why I found your discussion on moral competence really interesting and informative and helpful was because I practice philosophizing with children, right? So one of the, I mean, definitely, so the children I work with, or at least especially before the pandemic, are typically quite young, you know, like four or five. And yeah, Yeah. I mean, I have worked with slightly older um, children. So I've worked with first grade children who were probably around seven, maybe six. And then I've worked with um, some middle schoolers and teenagers. And obviously those are all very different, wildly different age groups and yeah, uh, they yeah. come with different skill sets and different interests and all of that. But I typically work with smaller, with younger kids. And I realized at some point that part of the difficulty of trying to philosophize with young children is that we do learn so much in the process of also acquiring our mother tongue, right? And so if you have these small children who are literally in the process of acquiring their language, there's so much more that they are not quite yet fully competent in. And so the kinds of, um, usually in in philosophy for children, there's some sort of activity or a storybook you might read or some kind of lesson. And a big part of it is just getting the children to talk to each other and talk to you, you, the, the facilitator. And it involves asking questions, but a lot of the small children literally can't do that on command. Right? If you if you tell them, like, ask a question, even though like they know how to answer a question if you address a question to them. But to yeah. abstractly think about a question as a proposition, the answer to which we don't know or something like that is just not at all something that the average child thinks about, which is perfectly fine. There's no reason for them to think about it. But as an instructor, yeah. you have to think about it even because they can't or because they won't or don't. And so I thought yeah. started thinking about like just questions like how on earth do we teach children how to be good? Like, how do you take a, a small, a tiny person, you know, who's incredibly just new to everything, everything is new to them, they're just being constantly flooded with new experiences, and they're also really vulnerable and need help in all the base, most basic things of life. How do we manage as a species to get little people from that point to the point where they're adults who might become the prime ministers of countries or become parents yeah. themselves, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And I think about that a lot lately. I, I don't have children and I'm not in this part of my life where I think that's likely that I will. But I do think about it in terms of education. I'm like, wow, it's really amazing they were able to raise anybody at all. And, yeah. how, <laughs> and, how, and, and yet it's been happening for millennia. 
I mean, that's obviously that's how the part of the life history of our species. So I just I'm always amazed by anyone who like attempts even even attempts to do like, the endeavor of trying to offer some account of how it is that we become good or how we become morally competent. And like the idea of training and drilling as um, as odd as people uh, might sound to apply to like human children is a big part of it. It's like you start yeah. with washing your hands and staying in your place in line and not stealing, you know, the child yeah. next to you. And I mean, really small, and I have some of these examples also in my book, because when I was finishing the book, I had a really, really small child. Um, so, I mean, they start hitting other, other children point they, and then to, or they, they take something away from another child. And then you need to, to tell them, no, but you, this is hers and you should give it back or no, it, or no, it's not hit that person, it hurts. So, and the, yeah, and then you can try to, there are different ways of, of doing this, right? But that was very interesting for me also to reflect upon how do you do that? So how can you also facilitate the development of empathy in children? So, yeah, one way seems to be to try to make them imagine what it feels like for the other child, the one who is being hit. But in the beginning, I mean, they seem not to get that at all. It's really, <laughs> they do not have this capacity at all. So it gradually develops. And I find that fascinating as well. How does that start? How in the beginning, it seems, yeah, you are saying it and you have to, or you have to try it, but it's, yeah, <laughs> it's just not there yet. I really like it that you you are philosophizing with children. Actually, I I am going to start um, teaching or philosophizing with primary school children on a voluntary voluntary basis. Corona permits was supposed to start in February. Will be children the age of between roughly between nine and twelve, and I'm really looking forward to that. I'm so curious how that will be. Like also compared to having students at university. Um, of course, they are not four anymore. So my my own my youngest daughter is four, my older daughter is seven. So I have mm. that at home. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, when my 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 older daughter was really small, she kept like taking all the books from the bookshelf and especially also all the philosophy books and like looking at them. And it was so funny. See this little toddler with a cunt in her hands so with Einstein. And <laughs> um, actually, I mean, mm. I have so one of a professor I know at the institution I'm at, his advisor wrote a book, apparently, I haven't been able to track it down. I think it's in an archive because I'm not sure it was ever published, but apparently someone tried to write a book called Kant for Kinder, right? And I was ah. like, I, I, and, I, <laughs> I, and I, I want to read it. I want to know yeah. who on earth, yeah. who on earth would like, at the same time, of course, Kant envisioned, um, I don't know if he ever did. I, I can't imagine Kant working with children, but he did envision a kind of moral education, you know, mm. um, at least in the metaphysics of morals, which I also think is just very interesting. How do you yeah. wind up with someone as intimidating as Immanuel Kant, yeah. you know, offering advice to, to people who are going to do anything with children? Um, it's yeah. an interesting thing. But... Yeah, very interesting as well, yeah. Of course, Wittgenstein, I think somewhere Wittgenstein, I, in more than one place, probably, Wittgenstein sometimes says that philosophers can be like children. And so then I think about, you know, the levels of language games, so to speak, of how you have, of course, our very basic sort of things we learn, but this activity of philosophy we're engaged in is its own family of language games. And so I wonder the ways in yeah. which philosophers have to mature um, or develop or become competent. I still don't know how to be a competent philosopher, so I'm still <laughs> learning. Yeah. Actually, one of the things that I expect from, from teaching these young children, or teaching, I mean, it sounds even not correct. It's more like 
philosophizing with them is really that I will learn from that. It will be really enriching, I think, to to see how they react to to my questions. And I think the biggest challenge will be not to talk too much. I think the main idea is to ask them questions. So you, you just told me that it's often difficult for them to ask questions themselves. So I was mainly thinking about asking them questions and trying to ask further and further and of course having different different ideas, different setups, but definitely not tell them something about Kant or something. And that's really mm. not what I'm going to do. But I'm really curious how they will react, how such a conversation will go compared mm -hmm. to a conversation with adults. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I... I Whenever I do, whenever I philosophize with children, me, with me and my colleagues, a couple of us do it um, somewhat regularly, um, particularly with four-year-olds. You can probably teach older children the word philosophy, but just so that you don't have a lot of small children babbling a word that's close to philosophy because it's a long word, we just call it thinking time. Um, and we just, and thinking hmm. time, all we do is we're going to talk to each other, right? Um, and the talking is the point, right? Along yeah. with whatever we do. But yeah, I mean, it's just very interesting to see. I it's very it's great for me because again, it helps me contextualize that no matter how intimidating the adult world can be politically or economically or relationally, we were all once the kinds of little creatures that don't know how to ask a question or that <laughs> doesn't understand that you shouldn't bite someone because it hurts. And so if like. Yeah. If, if, I just remind myself all the time, like this is the kind of creature we are. This is the kind of creature we are. and. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, it helps me take the adult world slightly less seriously. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's very enriching. I find it really helpful to help to philosophize with children. Because I think whenever I do it, I think to myself, this is the thing that it's exciting about philosophy, like all the conceptual apparatus and the historical information and all of what it takes to be, you know, uh, a, a well-published scholar is not the same thing as what actually makes philosophy interesting and I think any, I still I, yeah. I think that anybody can do philosophy it's just a matter of presenting it in a way that makes people realize that they're doing philosophy all the time yeah yeah I mean in, in children because they are still so curious at least like hopefully there are many of them are and, and there's still so much to discover and they and they also don't shy away shy away from like everything they want to know. So it's interesting you say they find it difficult to ask questions, but on the other hand, very often they ask us questions where we find really hard to answer, right? They also, at least at some at some ages, they really come with, there's this age where they keep, keep asking why, 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 don't stop with that. <laughs> well, like my four-year-old, she is at the moment really concerned with death. So that is really fascinating to see how slowly she understands more and more what it means. Mm. that's um yeah so that's also of yeah. course a way of, way of philosophizing <laughs> like when your children start with something like that then how do you yeah how do you talk to them about that yeah, so it's... yeah. there's this really great storybook um i'd have to find it it's somewhere in my many many books but there's a, i think it's called um of course the book is in english and it's called when i die will i get better you know the question when i don't get better yeah, and yeah. it's a, and it and it's a, a book about a child who's had like you know a, another another child has died in their neighborhood and so obviously the community yeah. is yeah. dealing with this grief but of course the it's also really besides being very emotionally moving is a book about really the child acquiring the concept of death because so far they have only ever experienced people getting sick 
And so they, and then they know they learn as the child learns as part of what it means to get sick is that usually you get better. And so the question then is like, well, what happens if you don't get better? Like, is what, what is that called? And of course it's, you know, what we call death. Um, but yeah, it's just, yeah. So children definitely, there's also um, a great, there's a collection of cards which have like a drawing on one side and questions you can talk to a child with on the other. And uh, there's what the original set um, was called Cruelty Bites. And because the, the company is called Wonder Ponder, like the words wonder and ponder um, together. And, but the first set was about cruelty because that's what the kids who those philosophers work with wanted to talk about. They wanted to talk about pain and like what it means mm. to be mean and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So yeah, it can definitely be very, yeah, children are not afraid to explore and go down those routes, which as adults, we may, we may have hesitations about talking to kids about certain things, but yeah. usually the kids don't have that kind of inhibition. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, so I've, of course, been thinking about what kind of topics to address. There's so much, you could do so many things. I have 10 lessons, so <laughs> and um, I was thinking about starting with the question, why it's important for us to be with others, but also to be alone with, with the background, of course, the whole pandemic and that social distancing. And so, yeah, so what do they miss? when they are not with their friends or with their family and but, but why they also sometimes feel the need to to be on their own what yeah so this was i thought would be my first topic because it relates to to the current situation i think that's great yeah being being with others is such an interesting and important thing and yeah, it's definitely one of the things that i think is really interesting and important part of why i got interested in um, the philosophy of religion, besides the fact that I was raised religious myself, is that I just realized that even though lots of philosophy of religion is some kind of philosophical theology or is like focused or it talks mainly about things like God or about the doctrines of religion, again, it treating it kind of propositionally, a lot of my interest was that's not, I mean, that is what religion, what, what given religions and specific religious individuals say, but what are they actually doing? What do those practices look like? How do we get those ideas, those yeah. concepts? Yeah. And so much of that, so much of religion is social and is about just, yeah. you know, get, you know, getting people together in a setting where there's food and music or wherever there's some sort of ceremony. And how do humans behave when we're around each other in these contexts yeah. is what I'm really interested in. Um, and so that's how I, th I mean, that's one way in which I think Wittgensteinian philosophers of religion are different is that, you know, very seldom do we want to talk about God. We want to talk about togetherness and rituals <laughs> and, you know, people and histories, um, which I yeah. love. It's great. Yeah, I think that's very true. Yeah, it's so much about, commun about community. And that is also, I think, why many people also still today really find very important to, to belong to a, a community that is somehow centered around a church. Mm -hmm. This is a kind of community that they find there that they might not so easily find mm -hmm. elsewhere in a society that is very individualistic. And yeah. Yeah, certainly. On your path, like you're the journey you've had in philosophy. Have you, in, have you found yourself in any um, fly bottle traps? You know, have you had any sort of things that have either prevented your development or things that per like were personal hangups you had that you needed to work through. Yeah. So I like to use the yeah. um, fly bottle as, you know, metaphor for a struggle. Yeah. 
old, but what have your been into getting to where you are now, whether philosophically or personally? Yeah. So one thing that I struggled with was that I often felt that other people were trying to influence me really on like what to work on, work on. I felt I couldn't really freely decide what I wanted to do next and what I were. That started with the situation at the University of Heidelberg, where well, I told you all the professors doing different stuff were really like, like enemies in a way, and it was very competitive, and you were expected to be loyal to one of them and then not to follow courses of the other. <laughs> so these kind of things that it felt somehow I, I, I was suddenly I felt a bit stuck with this analytic philosopher <laughs> and it, it, it seemed that he expected me to, to stay with him and got really jealous when I went to somebody else's seminar, seminar, childish actually, but this is what, how it was there. Um, and I thought, well, but I'm now doing, I'm sitting in all these um, like philosophy of language courses. And most of the time I think, no, this is not really fascinating me. This is not what I really want to do. So why am I doing it? I, it seemed that I was doing somebody else a favor. I felt obliged. And then when I started my PhD, I mean, that was a big for, like, act of liberation also. He was also a bit shocked when he heard that I would now move into moral, philo moral philosophy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I did that step, so took that step. But then I ended up with a supervisor who, again, try to influence me in a way who was really not good at trying to understand what I wanted, like questions I was asking, but asking her question and some, and I often didn't really understand what she was asking or what she was going. And I thought I somehow have to like get into, go into her direction or please her somehow. So it was, I was thought, but I shouldn't let myself influence too much. I should, yeah, do what I want to do. And because, I mean, they asked, there were so many things that interested me. It seemed wrong to now, again, to always do something what somebody else wants. On the other hand, this also guided me in a way. And it's also, if I had been completely free and uninfluenced, I, I wouldn't have known what to do because there are so many interesting books to read. There's so many interesting philosophers and things to pursue. So I always found that so difficult to make a choice. And what I, the, the really positive experience in this regard I had at Berkeley with Barry Stroud, I had several conversations with him and he was so good at understanding what I was interested in. And then he kept asking me questions in that direction that really helped me to clarify my thoughts. And it was really perfect. I had the impression he completely understands without having read, he never read anything that I wrote. I just told him something and then he reacted to that. And that was just perfect. It was so good. And so he, he tried to understand and he, he managed to really well understand what I was getting at and where I wanted to like put the finger. And then he helped me with that. So that was really nice to have that experience. And um, yeah, in fact, this is perhaps another thing, but related thing that, that I, I, I am interested in so many different things that um, people have sometimes told me, well, that you do not have enough focus. And this is really in, in the academic landscape that we have now, that is difficult because people get more and more specialized, especially in the Netherlands, very different from the German context in the Netherlands. You, yeah, you do your PhD and then you do a postdoc basically in the same area. And then you hopefully become an assistant professor again in the same area. Whereas in Germany, after doing your PhD, the recommendation is to do something completely different so really, if you've done moral philosophy, then do not do moral philosophy, but do something like philosophy of language or something historical or whatever, but do something completely different because you have to be broad enough 
to then if, if you happen to become a professor, then you need to yeah, have this much broader profile. But so when I am after my PhD, I went to the Netherlands, I applied for postdoc positions. For example, one was about Kant and the role of emotions. And I had no idea that I had, would have no chance at all because my PhD was not on Kant. So no chance to get such a postdoc because you are expected to really build up on what you did in PhD so you can publish quickly and a lot. And so this is something I've been struggling with. Um, that I was told, well, you need to focus more. I mean, people told me, well, it is of course also one of your strengths that you are like rather broad and then have the, all these interests, but in order to really <laughs> succeed, you need to be more focused. And I have to admit, I had moments where I was really doubting then that this would be the right thing for me to do because I felt I'm just not like that. I do not wanna specialize on this one thing I want to, I'm, I'm curious, I want to learn new things, I'm, I want to combine things, and it's just not me. And that's something that I, I felt very strongly, I either do it my way, or I don't do it. And I, I, I got to the point where I thought, probably, I, I, it won't work my way. So probably I will have to, and actually, twice, I was already enrolled for a master's program to become a high school teacher. Um, and that was always something that also attracted me. So it was not like this horrible, like backup plan. It was something that I found also very attractive because I love teaching. And the thing that frustrates me sometimes at university is that although you are required to teach actually most of the time, it is not really appreciated. So what actually counts is publishing and getting external funding. But this you basically need to do in your free time. <laughs> and if you have small children, small children, how much free time do you have? Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so um, I thought when I teach at a school, then this would be really what I'm also supposed to do. And hopefully what will also be appreciated. So that would have been an advantage. But I was also very afraid that I would miss research. I would miss the whole community, the academic community. And so, yeah, in the end, I managed, it was actually really recently that I finally got this position, which is not, I don't yet have a permanent contract, but I have a very good yeah, prospect of getting a permanent contract in September, 2022. <laughs> and having this perspective for me has changed everything because all those years before there was this uncertainty, always temporary contracts like the force. Many people <laughs> are in this situation and it's, um, you never know and, and it's, yeah. And sometimes you feel like, I'm really tired of it. I cannot deal with it anymore. But then I also had moments again where I thought, okay, it's not that bad because my husband has a permanent position and we are quite settled because of our like children and we bought a house. So all that is quite stable. So I thought I can live with the uncertainty. And so, yeah, as long as I can do what I'm really interested in and everything, all the jobs I had were really interesting. I was at several universities. I have, yeah, I've experienced so many different things. So that was all really rewarding and, and enriching. But it was also really nice to have to then arrive somewhere. I have the feeling that I found my place. And this is, this is really, really nice. So I'm really, really happy and very grateful for that, especially because it was so tough. I had a lot of interviews before that in the end worked out interviews that went really well, but then I didn't get the respective job. And then you ask yourself, what is the problem? 
why do I always get like almost there and then in the end it doesn't and then I also felt that I'm not yeah just not taking like all the boxes yeah so I really didn't know and I thought yeah it could be that now it's I stop I quit I I become a high school teacher and I could have become perhaps I would have become very happy as well with that I'm very I can adapt very well that I know about myself about myself there's not only one way I can go but now that I'm there and I have this perspective of having a permanent contract soon um, I'm really happy and it feels right but I'm also happy that now I can next to that also teach a little bit at a school that's I really like that I'm happy that I can do that yeah that's wonderful I'm so happy that you've been able to find your place um, so it would seem and I resonate with a lot of what you say I'm also very eclectic in my interest and it's not just that I am scatterbrained or that I can't decide on what interests me in, I think it's the nature of philosophical research and work when it's done well. And I guess I hopefully think I do it well, but um, the, uh, the idea is that the more you learn, the more, the more things you come to understand, the more you realize you need to know more to understand that. And exactly. so even, even, though, even though, again, I began with a very, I would say naive, professionally naive interest in the philosophy of religion, I realized that, well, to even think about this intelligently, I need to know more about ethics and I need to know more about language and I need to know more about society and all of these things, history and languages. And so in the, I, I, I tell myself, I really am aiming for that sort of ultimate clarity that Wittgenstein talks about and the kind of stuff that perhaps analytic philosophers would like. I'm just not capable of doing it in the incredible piecemeal, in the incredibly piecemeal way that people want you to. I have to think yeah. more, you know, I can't just focus on one thing for four years and, you know, then switch gears. I have to be doing a lot of stuff at once. Um, and I don't yeah. think that's a, I think it's a professional weakness, perhaps because of the way academia now is, but I certainly don't think that it's a fault. And so I don't um, feel, I mean, it may, it may render it difficult, very difficult for me to eventually get an academic job, but I don't regret it at all. I think that that's just no, how, I, yeah. I just think that's how well-rounded people operate. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Yeah, no, it's really the system that at the moment doesn't really reward that. And it's, yeah, but and then in, in the end, I think it always also just has to fit. So in my case, this now worked out and it seemed that for that, because now I'm part of this very big um, research program on the ethics of socially disruptive technologies. And for that program, which is quite ambitious and has very different aims, but also the aim of really, yeah, somehow renewing uh, practical philosophy as a whole and look at the role of technology in practical philosophy and, and, and really trying to connect many different sub-disciplines. That really, it was a really a big advantage that I have this diverse background and I can, I can connect different traditions. And it was really a plus in this case, I think. Although in the interview, they really pushed me on that as well. That at some point I thought, no, they're not going to give me this job because they were like, <laughs> like teasing me, like saying, like asking me whether I was interested in something. And when I said yes, I said, oh, I shouldn't even ask you because you are interested in everything. <laughs> and I was okay, then tell me this. <laughs> but they gave me the job. And so it's like, they thought, well, actually I, for that, I am just, I'm the right candidate. And so that was really nice. So it can, it can be for some positions, some kind of project also, it's, that is exactly what they need. They do not only need these people who are so much specialized, although they might publish more or like, yeah, be more strategic. Yeah, I was never really strategic. And at some point I thought perhaps you really need to be mm. 
in order to make it. Like I always spend too much time, for example, on giving feedback to students, like too much. In, if you think of how like little it is appreciated in many contexts. Here in the Netherlands, they now want to change that. I'm curious whether that's going to happen, but they really want to like, mm -hmm. give more value to, to teaching. And um, yeah, I'm curious. Well, like, I mean, again, I think that this is where the points you make in your book are so interesting. It, every, nobody is going to deny the thesis the, that, that teaching is obviously important. But you know, teaching is not an idea, it's a practice. And, you know, so yeah. in order to actually change the whole culture, you have to have people who value the practice of teaching and the, all the individual processes, paying attention to students, you know, their facial expressions, seeing how they're right, see what's going on in their life. And if, you, if those are the things you care about, that will eventually shape the sort of things we say. But I, yeah, I've never met anyone who denies that teaching is important. They just don't want to pay for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but when I was, that was really yeah, odd. When I um, started my first academic position after finishing the PhD, that was a, like a lectureship, but not as in, in the UK, but it was, yeah, it was really a position where you are mainly teaching. You have a little bit of research time, but you're mainly teaching, but it's, it's temporary, so very insecure. But really 80% officially of my time was teaching officially. But then... Um, my head of department told me in the beginning, and he was, this was with a very good intention. He said, well, that, well, I recommend you to spend as little time on teaching or on like preparing your teaching as possible, because of course you need to publish, you need to do research. And he said, so go, go into your courses and don't prepare for that. Just, <laughs> so it felt absurd. I mean, of course he with this, I don't know how long experiences, perhaps then you can do that, but I was still very young and unexperienced as a teacher. Of course, I needed to prepare. I mean, if I didn't prepare, I would like be insecure. It also wouldn't be fun. So, I mean, I found that so strange that they pay me in that case mainly. I get an appointment for mainly teaching, and then they tell me try to not <laughs> worry so much about the teaching. But <laughs> so do it badly. They actually said, don't do it well because it will not be. You will not be rewarded for that because they had then the, had the experience that people then had to leave and couldn't get like the next position because they hadn't published enough because of this kind of contract. So, but then the solution was not to give them different contracts because some universities here also do that. They, they give contracts with more research time. They just, they'd say, this is exploitation. We do not give these kind of contracts to young like philosophers or young scholars. But in that case, they didn't change the contract. They just said, do it badly. <laughs> Don't prepare. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think almost more than any area of my life, academia has taught me, maybe even more than Wittgenstein, all of the varieties of nonsense that can come out of our <laughs> mouths. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And at the moment, of course, I mean, due to the pandemic, um, I also decided basically for myself that I give priority to teaching because this is also what the government has like, like recognized everyone who is teaching as having like a, a crucial profession, really being relevant for the system to, to work. So this is also why we, for example, then can make use of some like childcare, although officially like, everything is closed and stuff. So I really think, yeah, I mean, now it's the most important thing is to keep that running and support the students. Of course, they need some extra attention, extra support. Um, yeah, so I, I think I'd probably be a bit less productive in terms of research the coming weeks, perhaps months, depending on how it goes. But I'm not 100% sure what that will mean for my next evaluation, of course. 
but this is a bit the communication within the university that teaching should get priority priority at sea and, and but i somehow feel that now it's okay at the point where i am now i also really dare to dare to to do this but it's always uh, i mean and, and there is uh, there remains this tension that teaching takes up so much time especially if you want to do it well that not much time remains for research, even if officially, like officially I have 40% research time, which is quite a lot compared to some like other people in other positions. But in practice, it's not, mm. it's not that because the teaching just always takes more time. So of course, also the, all the communication with students as well. Everything, I mean, there's so many things that just take time. And I like doing those things. I like doing most of the things that I have to do actually, which is really nice, I'm really, I'm really happy about. But what I don't like is that I do not really have enough time for that, or that I know if I spend all this time on this, then I won't have enough time to, to do my research. And yeah, so you basically know you cannot do it in the time that you are supposed to do it mm. in officially. Everybody, of course, works much, much more. And then generally, I, I don't mind that so much. I don't mind. I mean, now I'm also, of course, always <laughs> also having this conversation with you in the evening. It's no problem at all. And often I sit here and, and write or do whatever and I'm still in the evening. But since I, especially since I have a family, have small children, I don't want to work all the time. They're just yeah. other things, especially in this phase of my life. There are other things that are also very important that I want to have time for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. I know that as a graduate student in the US, it's a similar situation where part of the way that we're funded in the US is that we are basically teaching assistants. And so for the yeah. duration of our of our PhD, we are simultaneously teaching some, in some way or doing t assisting, assistant teaching, and then also supposed to be doing our own research. And I mean, I've on paper, again, it's kind of like the focus is supposed to be research. And at the same time, the vast majority of the time of all the graduate students I know is spent on preparing for their teaching, right? Which is something they've never done before, yeah. which is something that we have to get with. Um, I mean, perhaps we don't have to get good at it because again, perhaps unfortunately, since teaching is so undervalued, it seems people might even encourage, encourage you to do it badly. But most of the students I know, the grad students I know want to be good teachers eventually. And so we're, we're in this absurd scenario where, you know, our supervisors tell us, you know, try not to spend this many, more than this many hours a week teaching or doing things for teaching. And all of us are just speechless. We're thinking like, are you out of your mind? Like, like that's <laughs> like, if yeah. we, if we spend that little time doing it, we'd barely get the teaching done. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's so unrealistic and everybody knows it. Right. Because, I mean, here at least we always get an official amount of hours for each course that we teach, but everybody knows that these hours are just not realistic. And then the question is how unrealistic are they? And they try to, I think at this university where I'm now, they're now they are more their best to make it more realistic. But of course it depends also if you do it for the first time, it always takes a lot more time. Yeah. And if you do it like a second time, my first, this job where I was a lecturer, I taught one course actually three times and that really made a difference. So the second time, the second time it was much like, I was much quicker and preparing and I really enjoyed it because I felt much more secure and it was really nice. But the third time, of course, it started also to become a little bit boring, but they were really good students. It was political philosophy. It was really nice. But then yeah, I thought, okay, if I, I want to do something new as well now. 
but it was really nice to teach the same course second time, like being able to improve it on the basis of the mistakes you made the first time and not having to prepare everything from scratch. But that was really, I like that. Yeah, that makes such a big difference, definitely. Mm. And how I, much time you have to invest. When I was a younger grad student, because I'm supposedly about to be dissertating. So when I was a younger grad student, you know, our teaching days were typically Fridays. And so we would just teach the same course you know, a couple of times, two or three times throughout the day. And I'd always apologize to my first class session of the day in the early morning and saying, it's, this is just going to happen that I'm always going to teach the second session much better. I'm going to have like experienced oh, yeah. and thought through. Yeah. So you all are like the lab for my, yeah. for the teaching later in the day. And that's just how it has to be. I'm sorry, but definitely the, uh, the first, se- the first time you ever teach serves as a great, as a really important foundation for anything else you teach later. So yeah, for me, that's just how it has worked out. But yeah, being able to teach something and get good at it again, because I mean, these are practices that require training. Is, yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is what I feel now also so much. I feel now that it really pays off all the training that I have now had. I feel that I'm just much more confident in that and, and also that I can do it with in a way with less preparation. I do prepare, but it's not like it used to be. So that's really nice. I enjoy that. It's, it's good to at some point have the feeling because I think that's something also that I found always in a way attractive, but also exhausting or stressful in philosophy that you are so often in a situation where you feel, Ooh, I, I don't understand this or somehow it's something that just feels too demanding. So you feel overwhelmed and you are stuck with some with a thought or with a, yeah, something you're writing and you feel lonely with that. And then, so these kind of situations. So I like it that I now also have the experience that I actually had a lot of training and some things get easier. I get more confident. So I really can see that I improved and that's so yeah, I enjoy that. And of course I I want to also still always have this feeling that there's so much new to learn and that it's challenging. That's really important. Otherwise, it would, would be much less attractive for me. But it's also nice to feel, okay, here I have already some routine. Really, really something that makes life easier for me. Mm. Yeah. So what are you teaching now? that you have uh, now that you have this position and that you have a bit more that you've gotten good at more confident in your teaching what kind of stuff are you d- teaching now at the university of twenta yeah and yeah yeah so there's two different kinds of teaching one is within this master program that we have which is very small which is this philosophy of uh, science technology and society and there i at the moment i'm teaching a course called ethics and technology <laughs> so it's quite broad. And on the one hand, it's an introduction to the main ethical approaches, but it's also always and in relation to technology. And um, I added Wittgenstein to the syllabus <laughs> and, and also pragmatism and care ethics, actually a number of things. It was very traditional before. So mainly the mo- like mainstream ethical theory, theories and then ethical concepts, uh, concepts like autonomy, etc. And yeah, I now added all these, uh, replaced some topics. I taught it together with somebody else. The, the person who was teaching it with me, he did all the traditional stuff in the first half of the course, starting with yeah, in, actually intuitionism, which is perhaps not so standard, but that's because he himself has a kind of intuitionist approach. And then 
consequentialism, deontology, virtue ethics. And then I continued with, with other things, amongst others, pragmatist, uh, pragmatist ethics and Wittgensteinian ethics. And the students are really excited about that. So that is actually really nice. Now, now they have to write their papers in the end, and several of them picked uh, this topic, so something related to Wittgenstein, related to pragmatism. I found that really, really nice to see. I also now have two, two master students writing their thesis about about Wittgenstein in relation to the approach of technological mediation, which is something I'm now also working on. I'm not trying to connecting, uh, connect these uh, two like, traditions, approaches. Um, so I'm doing that. And then on the other hand, I'm also teaching medical ethics to students of health sciences and technical medicine. So I am now the responsible person for these studies. Um, because we have um, this kind of system where the philosophers teach in all the other programs that the university has. So everything like communication sciences, um, design, everything that we have, psychology, everywhere the philosophers teach what they some basically call actually reflection more in general, but often it's mainly ethics. Not everywhere, depending on which program, but in my case, it's mainly ethics. And then you are just part, you just contribute a small part to a module. It's always organized in modules and mainly the students are working on a particular project. So there are many different teachers involved. They're working a lot in groups. And I enjoy that actually. It's, it's also, again, a challenge. It's completely new, yeah, target group. And now I, at the moment I have um, a group, um, they are first year students of health sciences. Some of them are, have already been working, for example, as nurses or somewhere in the healthcare sector. And then they do the study. Others come straight from high school, do not yet know what exactly they want to do. And my challenge here is now really to, first of all, get them interested in ethics or see the relevance of that. And yeah, then somehow help them, enable them to ask ethical questions, to see the ethical dimension of, of what they are doing or will be doing and I really try to do this like much less traditional. The traditional way was always just telling them about like ethical theories and like principles of medical ethics, very abstract, and then ask, okay, do you think you can do anything with that in practice? And, and I tried to start from, from their practical experiences. And I also now did something related to the concept of positive health and the, also the pandemic as a context and good healthcare in the pandemic. And and it's, yeah, I think it, it worked well. And in, in the discussion, students also came with their own examples and they could relate what we're talking about to experiences they have had as far as they've already been working in this context. So that's something very different. And I really don't have the ambition to explain very complex philosophical thoughts or arguments to them. The aim is much more to make them open for these kind of issues in the first place, because I asked myself, what do I want? What is the aim? The aim is that these students, when they are, especially when they are become practitioners, they are asking these kind of questions and they are aware of, of ethical issues, which many people just don't seem to be. So this is my aim and I hope that I will, and I have to, uh, to grow in that. This is, I now start that and I'm curious how it's gonna develop. Yeah, and before that actually in Eindhoven, I taught ethics of technology to engineers, computer scientists, architects, also very diverse group. 
So for quite some time, I have had few real, few real students. Mm -hmm. Now in this master program, and we have part of the students are philosophy bachelors, others are engineers, and then the others are like more social scientists. So you have this combination, but you have several people who have a philosophy bachelor at least. And yeah, in general, they are really interested in philosophy. So that it's quite really a high exciting. level. Yeah. And it feels, yeah, that students are picking this up. We also have one course that's called Philo Lab. It's all a bit with the labs because we are, we, I mean, it's, it's, it's this technical environment. <laughs> and in this Philo Lab, um, different teachers or staff members are involved and they contribute one of their papers, I mean, work in progress. And I just, I, took a paper I wrote on uncertainty in relation to yeah, technological development and the question of the technological disruption of epistemic certainty. And then this stu a group of students read all these papers and then they decided on, on one or where they wanted to, which group they wanted to be. So three students chose my group my, and then they wrote their own paper based on my paper. So they really did something with it. That was really, really nice. And two of those are now writing their master thesis under my supervision. And also they continued with that, continued with Wittgenstein in relation to this idea of the technological mediation of, yeah, of perception and action. And yeah, so that is really nice. It's really nice here now to be able to connect also teaching and research and to see that students are getting as excited about the stuff that I'm doing. Yeah, that's something that makes me very happy. I find that really, yeah, inspiring and encouraging. And it's, it's, it's really nice to have this kind of relationship with students. Yeah, it definitely seems like very satisfying to see not only your, your own work, have, have people take an interest in your work, but also to have them develop the, on their own and to really have those like teacher-student relationships that, I mean, part of what the reason why, you know, obviously I invited you to this sort of podcast is because I think that that's something that, even though it's like teaching itself, is so vitally important, those concrete connections between teacher and student or professor and student or um, senior professor with junior professor. It's not something that people often talk about in that way, even though everyone has these kind of experiences. Everyone who gets a PhD know what it is, knows what it is to have a supervisor and all of that, but to sort of be thinking about it while you're doing it, adding that level of reflection, I think is really important. Um, and so I've, I, I'm trying to create more of a space for that to say like, oh, for those who are interested in philosophy in general, Wittgenstein specifically, and academia, as well to have that reflective process as we're going what is it what is it what is it that we academics and scholars and philosophers are doing and how are we cooperating with each other as we do it and just all of that just interests me because i think of philosophy as a practice too like morality yeah, and yeah um so like being able to be reflectively aware of of the practice as we're doing it so that we don't wind up in a situation where we have this system that doesn't seem to cherish the thing that we really care about, you know, teaching, learning, edu all, education, and all of that. Um, I feel like, I mean, I, obviously there are economic things that I don't understand that have pr produced the world we now <laughs> yeah. live in. Yeah. But in general, yeah. I just think it's the silliest thing in the world that philosophers as a community have not been able to solve what our role in our other communities is and should be. Yeah. Um, I, I, want, I want philosophers of all sorts, whether they're analytic or continental or none of the above, 
to just think more about it, like the role we have and what we're doing when we do philosophy. Yeah. Yeah, in the Netherlands, um, I mean, the pressure is quite high for every discipline to to show why it's relevant, what you're doing, how like society can somehow profit from it, so from it, so first of all, it's out of pressure here. But I think in general, because Dutch people are a bit more pragmatic, a bit also more like practically oriented. Here, I think now many philosophers communicate a lot with with other disciplines, with the outside world. Um, so this seems here in this context I am in now already much more common. And this is actually something that I also really enjoy because as much as I love just reading philosophical texts and discussing them, like reading them really closely and having this kind of discussions with other philosophers, I also often ask myself, well, but how relevant is this really? And shouldn't I spend my time doing something that has like a more practical effect and that really helps people or helps solve societal problems. So this is something I have been struggling quite a lot, especially because I chose, of course, in the past, mainly topics that were very abstract, very theoretical, like more meta ethics than normative ethics and far away from applied ethics. And yeah, somehow I was always like, attracted by these very fundamental questions. It's also in, in, my, in my PhD and then in that book, it's really, I try to dig as deep as possible and it's very fundamental instead of asking much very more concretely how should we treat animals or what should we do to fight climate change or something so I was struggling with that on the one hand being drawn towards the, these kind of questions on the other hand also wanting to do something relevant like yeah more practical and now I've now I feel with all in this area of philosophy and ethics of technology it's much easier to be practically relevant and what's also nice is that I'm now, basically, I think it comes through the position I'm in now that I'm also also been asked to, to give ethical advice, for example, to a company that is, um, yeah, has started some kind of research, like preventive research um, in the medical context. So, and then of course, all kinds of ethical issues arise. So they asked me to, to advise them and, and also another, like, different research projects had asked me to be an ethical expert. So it, I start now also really trying to help and, 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 and give advice to people who are really in practice. So that's really nice. For me. That's really what I enjoy. It's getting more relevant. And at the same time, of course, I can also still do really real philosophy, but I can also reach out more and I'm much more in contact with people from other disciplines, already people from whatever, um, the outside world, <laughs> who actually are interested in, in what philosophers do, what ethicists do. So well, on that note, given that you're, we have this more outward looking focus on philosophy's interaction with other fields and with just other life problems, what kind of... I guess, advice or suggestions would you give to someone who was interested in philosophy or thinks they're interested in philosophy, but just isn't sure where to dive in or how to get started? How, how would you set someone up to start philosophizing? Hmm, interesting question, because I would think that somebody, everyone already has some kind of starting point. Like usually people think about this in the first place because they've come across some philosopher they find interesting, right? Or some, I don't know, some, so hard to imagine for me, someone who just thinks, oh, I would like to do philosophy, but how should I do, how should I do it? 
Uh, no, so no, I would normally think that there's someone has already read something. That's what normally happens, that students, like the students I have now, that for, I have one student who comes from a mathematical background, comes from mathematics to this master program. And yeah, and, but she now told me that her first impression is that philosophy of science is more her cup of tea than ethics, for instance. Um, so I would always take that as a starting point and then see where I would lead them. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say to people, you have to read Wittgenstein. <laughs> I don't know. I would probably see, well, what is, where do they come from? And then what, what could be a next step? But certainly I, I, I do, um, if it fits, then I do tell people that it could be really interesting for them to, to read Wittgenstein <laughs> because of this openness, because, yeah, because of his style, his way of engaging the reader. So probably rather recommend that than reading Kant, <laughs> although I wouldn't say that it's not worthwhile reading Kant, but it's probably much less accessible, although that depends, of course, also on the kind of people. So I, yeah, it's a difficult question, I think. But you, I've never experienced that. I've usually always had people who already had an entry point into philosophy, but then perhaps wondered how to continue or something, or mm. but there was always already this, yeah. Mm. I guess perhaps I guess perhaps what I was aiming at was not so much clearly lots of people start off somewhere where they get into philosophy but I guess meant more in terms of like on the on the train or something if someone asks what you do when you tell them you're a philosopher um and you, you know you have to explain what that is you know everyone wants to know ah, okay. what we do ah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so I guess it was really a question about how you think about ah, what yeah. it is you do and what philosophy ah, okay, is okay. ah yeah okay yeah that's I've understood the question differently Yeah, um, I find that always very difficult to say what it actually is. Um, so the main thing seems to be to ask questions where others would usually not not think about asking, not think that it perhaps is even a question. <laughs> On the other hand, with my uh, more Wittgensteinian approach, of course, I also do not believe that it always makes sense to ask certain questions. So it's not that you just have to question everything. I wouldn't say that, but certainly you, um, you wanna dig deeper or you wanna perhaps it's also, I, I feel that as a philosopher, I'm also in a way sometimes a bit above the other disciplines and that way also being able to see where the connections are and perhaps where certain challenges are. So it's also, I mean, in a way, what you said earlier, when you start with something, you always feel that you need to know more about this. And I have had that, especially not only like within philosophy, but in, but I need to know so much about other disciplines, right? Well, I think you said that as well yes, yourself. Yeah. So it seems as a philosopher, we try to say something about so many different topics and all these topics involve so many, so many yeah, disciplines and, and, and yeah, areas of life that you often feel in the end, not competent to say something substantially about these issues, right? I think that's something that you feel either you need to really study psychology or you need to study economics or you need to study um, I don't know, neuroscience, what have you, yeah, anthropology. So you always feel that you are missing, you're lacking some knowledge that you should have. But then again, you also experience that you are valued as a philosopher by people from other disciplines because you yeah, you have this different view on things and you sometimes look at a bit slightly higher level and you can point out, yeah, certain problems or certain relationships. 
And of course, often philosophers say, well, what they're doing is trying to clarify concepts <laughs> or like doing conceptual analysis. <laughs> um, I guess to some extent that is true, but um, not in this, or at least I would not say that I want to do it in this very abstract sense, at least not only, but also really trying to understand certain concepts better as they function in practice. And I think indeed, because we had this earlier, this topic that Wittgenstein is somehow following us, and it seems that everywhere it is useful, he can help, or he, it's, 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 he influences how I see these things. Also now when I teach medical ethics that I'm very aware of the traditional, like the, 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 the danger that traditional approaches um, are mainly aiming at these absolute, like general universal principles and not very sensitive to contextual differences. And this really this focus on principles, not very open for the yeah, processes of change especially of course, when you're interested in technology, that seems really problematic. If you do not allow for change, you're always looking for the stable thing and the fixed thing. So there, I'm, this is also Wittgenstein that brings me to approaching this differently and not coming always with these traditional approaches, but trying to make the students be very aware of the different contexts and, and cases and, and not to overgeneralize, see what like the importance of context. That's awesome. Um, well, I mean, I think this was great. Thank you so much for joining me, for being willing to join me. I, I can't imagine what it's like to receive a random email asking you to be on someone's, you know, <laughs> new podcast, but I'm so grateful that you were open. No, I'm really grateful you asked me. I think this has also something to do with the pandemic. It feels to me that people are more reaching out also across continents, because we, we now we are so used, we can use Zoom, it's, it's all possible. And yeah, no, I, I thought that is a great opportunity. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, well, this was Thank my you. conversation with Dr. Julia Hermann uh, for the University of Twente on her book on metaethics and a whole lot of other things related to Wittgenstein. Thank you so much. And I hope to um, communicate with you and work with you or read yeah. more of your writing in the future. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading something that you wrote as well. Yeah, thank you very much.